Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. This morning we are in verses 13 through 17 as we work our way through the good news according to Matthew. This morning, Matthew tells us about the baptism of Jesus. Last week, we saw John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah was in the wilderness as a wilderness kind of guy. I mean, he did wear uh, camel's hair and he ate locusts and wild honey in answer to the prophecy of Isaiah that a voice would cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming. So John had good news. The Lord is coming. And many people responded to his command to repent by confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him. They turned away from their self-righteousness. They turned to the Lord for cleansing. That's why John baptized. And now in the passage before us, in a startling way, really, and John is startled by it, Jesus comes to be baptized. And some pretty unusual things happen at his baptism. Let me invite you to ponder this with us this morning from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Hear now the word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said... This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, thank you for your word about your son. We pray that you would lift him before our eyes and show us his glory. And we pray that this word would come with demonstration of the spirit and power, not by words of man's wisdom, so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. For Jesus' sake and our own good, we pray. Amen. Amen. The point of this passage is not that we should go do as Jesus did. What would Jesus do, people ask? It's not a bad question in its context. Uh, Some would say, well, Jesus got baptized, you should go do likewise. That's not the point of this passage. And too many people think Christianity is fundamentally about learning what Jesus did and then doing it ourselves. Jesus was baptized, go be baptized. That's not the point of this passage. It's not the point of the life, sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, you may remember, also walked on water. You can't go do that. Jesus knew what was inside man and knew the thoughts of man. You can't do that. Jesus died for the sins of the world. You can't go do that. And while imitating Jesus is important 
for ethics and morality, I mean, we have no better example of love than the love of the Lord Jesus. And it's a good example we ought to aspire to. You can't, by imitating Jesus, do a single thing to bring about your own forgiveness of sins or a right standing with God by your own works. Sometimes the takeaway from a sermon then is not, here's how to imitate Jesus, but here's why you should trust Jesus. The issue here isn't what would Jesus do, it's what did Jesus do. Matthew says he was baptized. What do we learn from that? Let's highlight three things. We see in his baptism the obedience of God the Son, verses 13 to 15. We see the Spirit's anointing of God the Son, verse 16. And we see the Father's pleasure in his Son, verse 17. Think about these things. First, the baptism and obedience of the Son. Verses 13 to 15, Jesus came to be obedient to God. That's why he's there with John. He came to, as he says, fulfill all righteousness. And he did. So he comes to John from Galilee. He's traveled some 70 miles. It's no no spur of the moment thing. This is a well-planned destination. He arrives and John objects, verse 14. He would have prevented him. He persistently was saying, no, this... I shouldn't baptize you. Uh, I need to be baptized by you. He's saying, look, this should be the other way around. Things are backwards here. I I need you to baptize me. You don't need me to baptize you. John understands that John, the greatest, Jesus said in his generation, the last of the Old Testament prophets, John needs Jesus, and he knows that. And he needs what Jesus can give, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, for now... I need to receive your baptism, the baptism of water by you. So they went ahead with it. Why? Verse 15, Jesus explains, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. What's going on? Jesus is saying it's fitting that I be baptized by you. Because I need to fulfill, and you need, as a participant in this thing, fulfill all righteousness with me. Now, Jesus doesn't have to have sins washed away. He isn't confessing any personal sin. He doesn't have any personal sin. He was holy, innocent, and undefiled. So he isn't like those others who came for John's baptism, who confessed their sins and were baptized for repentance. Jesus doesn't need, in that sense, a picture of the washing away of the filth of his sin laid on his body. He doesn't need a promise of the washing away of sin given to him by means of water and word. What's going on then? Some see here uh, in the baptism of Jesus the fulfillment of a command given in Numbers chapter 8. That a priest should be baptized before he entered the public ministry. Priests in the Old Testament were baptized prior to. They were consecrated by and set apart by showing that God had called them into service and they needed to be clean to do so. Jewish priests were washed with water and so our great high priest begins his 
public ministry being washed as well. Though, of course, Jesus is not of the tribe of the priesthood. He's not of the tribe of the Levites. He's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the kingly line, but he's also going to fulfill the high priestly line, but after the order of Melchizedek, not the order of the Levites. Jesus isn't like an Old Testament priest in that way. And yet, still, God, in having him baptized, uh, appoints him and anoints him and equips him for service in his office as the Messiah. And it was right, John says, to do so. And it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus would have been disobedient to not do this. Others see here, in his being baptized, his close identification with sinners who do need to be baptized. His closest possible identification, though he doesn't need him for himself, Yet he doesn't scorn being identified with or numbered among, as Isaiah 53 says, numbered among the transgressors. He would be counted among the transgressors. He would identify with us in our sins. You'll know that he'll be falsely accused of all manner of sins as he suffers for our sins. Jeff Thomas says Jesus' Jordan baptism inaugurated him into a ministry whose climax would be a baptism in a fountain filled with his own blood. He had come to stand where sinners stand, receive what they deserve, and give them life and adoption into his family. So all of this is part of Christ's, what we might call, and theologically is called his active obedience Uh, to fulfill all righteousness. His passive obedience is um, a theological way of speaking of his, his suffering upon the cross, what our sins deserve. His active obedience is the way of speaking of his perfect life of obedience, his perfect life of love, his obeying all God's commands, doing everything God required of him that he might be right with God and remain right with God by his obedience. John chapter 4 verse 34, Jesus said, "My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I'm here on the Father's behalf, doing what I've been told to do and I'm willing to do." Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7, "Behold," says Jesus, "I have come to do your will, O God." Doing God's will involved both, uh, it involved satisfying the demands of God's law. That meant both suffering God's wrath for those who broke God's law and disobeyed God, as well as fulfilling God's commands to obey God. This active obedience of Christ to fulfill all righteousness, which plays out over the course of his whole life, is a tremendous source of comfort for believers who understand what Jesus has done. Because we look at ourselves as Christians, and we look at our failures, we look at our weaknesses, we look at our shortcomings, we we look at our divided hearts, we look at the times that we've stumbled into sin, and the times that we've plunged headlong into sin. We look at all that God has said we ought to do that we haven't done. We look at ourselves and we realize, I have not loved God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind every day. 
every hour. And I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I've not done what God calls me to do. But Jesus has, the scripture says. He has done everything God asked any human being to do. And he did it for us. And even the best about us isn't enough to make up for our sins. And it isn't enough to meet the righteous requirements of the law of God. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in his own biography in Philippians chapter 3 when he talks about himself and he says, you know, if anyone thinks he's got a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He doesn't mean sinless, but you couldn't have charged him with public and scandalous sin. Indeed, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, he says. Dung. I pile up all my ancestry, all the right things my parents did in getting me circumcised on exactly the right day, all the, the fact that I come from the right tribe and the right people, and I had the right education, and I studied the law to the people who believe the Bible. And that you couldn't charge me with living a scandalous life or anything like that. And I pile all of that up and I count it dung. And I turn away from that, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you understand what Paul is saying in Philippians? I didn't fulfill all righteousness. Jesus did. Through faith in him, I'm united to him, and I have the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness that's the gift of God. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Do you understand that for yourself? I find, I meet Christians all the time who can say, Jesus died for my sins. That's a wonderful and important truth, and it's foundational and basic. Just as foundational and basic is that Jesus lived for your righteousness. So you don't get your sins forgiven and then get left trying to, to, to you know, do cartwheels for God so that he'll keep on accepting you or approving of you or think highly of you. Jesus did everything that you need to be approved and accepted by God. I don't know if you know the name, and you probably don't. That's why I'm telling this illustration. The name Dickie Simpkins. He is, uh, well, he has more NBA championships than megastars Charles Barkley, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, Kevin Durant, Patrick Ewing, Carl the Man Malone. He's won, Simpkins has, three NBA championships. When he was with the Chicago Bulls, 96, 97, and 98. Yet in 1996 and 1997, he had zero points, zero rebounds, zero assists, zero blocks, and zero steals in the entire playoff run. 
Why? Because he played zero minutes. Yet his rings are the same cut, the same quality, the same design as his teammates who played Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman and Steve Kerr. Why? Why does he have the rings? Because he was on the team and benefited by their work, their sweat, their effort on the court that mattered in the time that it mattered. And so he's a champion. He's in the record books as a champion, though he contributed nothing to the championship games. In a similar way, the gospel says to us that we bring nothing to the table before Almighty God. And yet we are counted righteous through the righteous efforts and the righteous work and the righteous obedience of another on our behalf, Jesus, who fulfilled all righteousness. That ought to take a weight of pressure off your shoulder. Breathe a sigh of relief. Now second, we see here in this passage the Spirit's anointing of the Son. Verse 16. Jesus and John, it says, uh, they leave the water, they step onto the bank of the riverbed, and immediately God sent the Spirit of God onto Jesus in a public way. And it says, Jesus saw heaven torn open. What's that about? This is... More likely not. Some little pinhole prick in the sky through which a bright shining light came and the muffled sounds of heaven could possibly be heard. But rather you need to imagine God sticking his fingers through the veil, whatever it is that separates earth and heaven and tearing heaven open and Jesus looking into the place of the dwelling place of the glory of God where the angels and the archangels bow in praise and worship and the spirits of just men are made perfect forever gathered around his throne and there in the presence of God the spirit descends upon him it says like a dove resting on him what's that about the Spirit's coming in the form of a dove. Uh, well, picking up on the prior Old Testament history of the dove, we might say that this describes the certainty, or guaranteed in a sense, the certainty of God's new creation founded in Christ. You remember when God wiped out the first creation? At the time of his judgment against the people of Noah's generation for their wickedness. Because every thought of their heart was only evil all the time. And violence filled the earth. And God spared Noah and his family. But the rain of judgment came down. Literally flooded the earth. And Noah cracked a window in that ark after months and months and months. And he sent out a bird. And the dove brought back eventually indications that the waters were receding and that a new creation, a new beginning had come. Well, here Jesus emerges out of the waters of the Jordan and the spirit in the form of a dove appears and settles on him. And God's new creation in Christ is inaugurated. The new creation that will one day be made manifest and visible to all of us 
in the new heavens and the new earth. It's as though God is saying, I will begin again with my son. Notice also the presence of the Trinity here. All, I mean, you just have to remark on it. I can't avoid remarking on it. All three persons of the one God are present at the baptism of Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit simultaneously present and distinguishable from one another. The eternal Son of God is there in human flesh to be baptized. The Holy Spirit of God descends on him and the voice of the Father is heard from heaven. So it's not that there's one God in one person who sort of wears different hats at different times and sometimes he appears to be you know, Jesus and then he takes that hat off and then he appears to be the Spirit and he takes that hat off and he appears to be the Father. No, 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 no. All three appear here at once because God is one eternal divine being in three eternal persons equal in power and glory. I mean, it'll make your head explode trying to do the math on it, but it's what the Bible teaches. And so J.C. Ryle says it was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man in our image. And it was the whole Trinity again which at the beginning of the gospel seem to say, let us save man. Now why, why the coming of the Spirit on Jesus in the form of a dove? Well, it's not as though Jesus didn't have the Spirit prior to this baptism. He was, after all, by the Spirit conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, chapter 1, as the Spirit overshadowed her. He was by the Spirit like John was, filled with the Spirit from conception. But here he receives the sign of the Spirit publicly to teach us that Jesus needed the Spirit and had the Spirit and was given the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, to equip him for the ministry that he's going to do. Jesus needed the help of the Holy Spirit to be our Redeemer. Jesus lived as a man should live in dependence upon God, God the Holy Spirit, for help to live as man should live. You know that immediately after this passage, Jesus is going to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you know that Jesus overcomes the devil by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes forth, Jesus does, for Uh, works uh, day and night, three years, where he's going to teach and preach and heal and save. And the weight of that responsibility is going to be enormous. There will be times in the life of Jesus where he, he will be so weary he falls asleep in the back of a boat in the midst of a storm. He'll be exhausted, yet he'll get up early to pray. The weight of care and concern and responsibility on Jesus was unimaginably great for us. And in the frailty of human flesh, Jesus needed divine help to do all that he must do. Jesus was dependent upon the help of the Holy Spirit as he lived. And there's an enormous encouragement in that for us. Because that is how we're supposed to live. And much too easily, 
we take stock of ourselves and we think, I've got this. I can make it through this day. I can parent my children. I can do my work. I can worship God. I can be obedient. I can resist temptation in the power of my own strength. And you are fooling yourself when you think that. And you don't know yourself very well at all. We should never think that our sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, our service of God in this world is something that we can do in our own strength. It takes the help of the Lord. And so in the church, you know, why is it wrong for us to think that if we just had a little more enthusiasm, we just had a little more money, we just had a little more, you know, people, we just had, you know, newer carpets, we just had this, that, and the other human thing, then the church would really thrive and grow and conquer. I mean, that's foolishness. What we need is the work of the Spirit of God. And we need to be dependent upon that Spirit. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. And so you see then the obedience of God the Son, you see the Spirit's anointing for ministry of God the Son, and you see the Father's pleasure in his son, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus hears the voice of God the Father. The other gospel writers tell us others heard this voice too. And these words he hears are not entirely new. Even in terms of the history of Israel, if you were a faithful Jew who knew the Messianic promises of the Old Testament, these words would not surprise you. The first part is from Psalm 2, and the last portion is from Isaiah 42. In Psalm 2, and if you wanted to turn there to page 448, in Psalm 2, or just listen in, At verse 1, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed one? What's God's response to that? Psalm 2, His response is to laugh. He's the Creator. His creatures have sprung a rebellion against Him. It says He holds them in derision. They can't thwart my plans, he says. No, no, no. Verse 6, Psalm 2, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. No one can thwart him. And he says of this king, this Messiah, verse 7, you are my son. And verse 8, ask of me and I will give the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. You are my son. Son, God says of the Messiah. And he says it of Jesus. And then in in Isaiah chapter 42, that last part of the voice from heaven, with you I am well pleased, is taken from Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. That's page 602 in your Bible. In a prophecy of a coming suffering servant who will atone for the sins of his people, Isaiah says this, Behold... My servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. Do you hear that? My beloved son, the Messiah, has come to serve. And I delight in him. I put my spirit on him so he can save his people from their sins. And the beauty of the picture of the spirit being on the servant of the Lord to bring forth justice to the nations is... He won't use that to break the weak, the bruised reed. He won't crush it. The faintly flickering wick, that smoldering fire. He won't snuff that out, but he's gentle and tender with the weak and the failing. He himself is like a dove and not like a hawk in his rule and service. So the Father says of Jesus, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And you've got to just reflect on how unique that statement is about Jesus. Not since before the rebellion at the time of Adam and Eve in the garden, had God looked at humanity and said, it's very good. This is pleasing to me. This is what it ought to be. But Mankind, after the fall, after the rebellion, fell out of favor with the Lord. He is justly deserving. We are justly deserving of his displeasure. That's the first vow of membership in Redeemer. But Jesus comes then as the last Adam, living a sinlessly obedient life, and finally to be the person who is pleasing to the Father. It's almost as if God says to this 30 year old man, I watched you grow up. I watched you play with the boys in the neighborhood and you never picked on them. You were never a bully. You were kind to every one of them. And I watched you grow up and you treated the girls with dignity and purity like sisters. You, even in your heart, never coveted them or had evil, perverse thoughts towards them. I watched you become a carpenter in Joseph's shop. And you always did an honest day's work. You were trustworthy. Your words were true. You never cheated anybody. And and you were grateful and content with my provision of you. Never grumbling or complaining against me. Never coveting what I didn't give to you. You, my son, you walked with me. You honored me. I saw it all and I am pleased with you. I approve of you. That's why Jesus should be a pleasure to you. Do you think about his son, what the father thinks of his son? And do you know that by believing in this son, you share the status of Jesus? The Bible says we are co-heirs with Christ. 
We're united to him. Too many of us drudge around saying things in our heart like, God likes me when I do well and he hates me when I do poorly. He welcomes me when I'm good and he rejects me when I'm not so good. And what we're really saying when we're saying that in our hearts about us is that our relationship with God is established by and maintained by our performance. And that is both arrogant and really depressing. But God says, my son is enough. He's all I require. I am pleased with him. And if you are in him, sheltered in him, bound to him, united to him, then you too are a child of God in him. A son or a daughter of the king and the father loves you. The Father is pleased to have you. He's not embarrassed by you. He's not ashamed of you. He wouldn't say, I wish I didn't have those people in my family. He's glad to make you His own through His own beloved Son. So do you agree with the Father? Are you pleased with His Son? He's the obedient one. He's the anointed one. One, He's the well-pleasing one, and He is just the Savior you need. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You do not treat us as our sins deserve. Thank You that salvation is a gift of Your grace. Thank You that You did not spare Your own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Thank you that you bring us home to yourself through him. Help us to know the love you have lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.